Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. A human embryo, the color violet, the sense impressions of a dog, a cannibal, Voltaire, the inexorable affinity between a tattooed criminal and a degenerate aristocrat. These are some of the keystones in the first two paragraphs of what are arguably the most creative, destructive, systematically misunderstood and influential eight pages in 20th century architectural thought. They are the opening images of ornament and crime, written by architect and cultural critic Adolf Loos in 1908. Perhaps because this essay was harnessed to notions far different from those the author intended from even its first publication, it marks a decisive pivot between early modern architecture and what we will now begin to call a modernist movement. But it is in looking through and past the interpretive biases that we receive from these subsequent directions in history that the piece can be seen as a reflection on the dawning of a new awareness, of a distinct way of perceiving the world that, for Loos, defined what it meant to be modern. He felt this new consciousness required not just a new architecture, but an entire new style of living, becoming what student and colleague Paul Engelman would describe as a revolutionary against the revolutionaries. Loos was born in 1870 in Brünn, now called Brno, at the time part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in what would later become the Czech Republic. He died in Vienna in 1933, having spent much of his later life in Paris. He was the son of a stonemason and sculptor. At the age of 12, early signs of hardness of hearing began to develop, a condition which, like that of Beethoven's, but in slower motion, would very gradually worsen, until at the end of his life he was almost completely deaf, communicating only through flashcards and writing. Having assisted in his father's stone workshop from a very young age, he developed a love for the beauty of material itself, and articulated geometric surface, often in stone and marble, would become a trademark of his coming career. However, his path to being an architect was even more winding than Sullivan's. His father died when he was nine, something that would set any child back, but especially a young man in a country where a professional network and social rank, indeed, a cultivated public persona, were everything. His professional training began with structural engineering courses in Reichenberg, now Liberec, in the Czech Republic. After studying architecture for a time at the Dresden University of Technology, he heard about the Grand Columbian Exposition, the 1893 World's Fair to be held in Chicago. When he told his mother of his plans to travel to what was already being thought of as the capital of architecture, with skyscrapers, elevators, and bridges that moved, she put her foot down and forbade him to go likely frightened that having lost her husband, her son was about to go literally half a world away, 
across a dangerous ocean to the edge of an Indian wilderness in a city already noted for its murders. When he insisted that his mind was made up, the woman played the only trump card she could. She offered to pay for the ticket, but if he took the money, she would make certain he never received any of his father's inheritance. Los was undeterred, left for America, and never once returned to the town of his birth. Though his only connection in the United States was an uncle living in Philadelphia that he had never met, he would spend three years abroad. He visited Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and New York. He was destitute much of the time, and variously found work as a bricklayer, a hairdresser's assistant, as an extra at the Metropolitan Opera, and a dishwasher, until he was finally able to secure employment as an architectural draftsman. Frustratingly, we have never been able to track down whose office he worked in. Adolf Opel, our source for that assertion, is maddeningly unspecific. Los was in Chicago expressly for the fair. He needed a job and was trained as an architect. Both Sullivan and his partner Adler grew up speaking German, and 1893 was the year in which they fired a young draftsman named Frank Lloyd Wright. The opportunity for at least a meeting was there, and it is tantalizing to speculate. In any case, the collection of these men in the same time and place, for the same purpose, with them being the least famous among a crowd of architects, certainly reinforces the fair's magnetism. Los returned to his homeland, but not to his home, in 1896. The immediate reason was that he had been called up for a stint of military service. The long, hapless arm of Austrian bureaucracy could not be stayed, even by exile to Chicago. But he would soon have his revenge on the powers that pulled him back into what he thought of as a backwater when compared to America. While he was still establishing himself as an architect, designing interiors in Vienna, he published a supplemental to Peter Altenberg's magazine Kunst. He named his publication The Introduction of Western Culture into Austria. Revealingly, he would later write of how, when speaking to an American woman visiting Vienna, he asked what was the one thing about Austria that had made the biggest impression on her. She said simply, All the bathrooms. Los replied that indeed, as regards the condition of plumbing, Austria was to the United States as China was to Austria. Well before his buildings raised eyebrows and voices, Los was able to accrue some well-earned notoriety as a cultural journalist with Altenberg and Krauss being among his closest colleagues. Nor was he ever shy about self-promotion. Indeed, when contributing an entry to the 1902 Encyclopedia of German-Austrian Artists and Writers, the entry by Adolf Loos was about Adolf Loos. His first design to cause a stir was the interior of the Café Museum. We have photos of it posted at lapsuslima.com. So spare were its aesthetics, so seemingly simple, that his opponents would call it Café Nihilismus. These were, after all, the years of the Viennese Secession, of the Gilded Klimt, and that precursor to the Bauhaus, the Wiener Werkstätte. Art Nouveau, the Jugendstil, 
or youth style, was all the rage. The funds of a patron were held to be a moral imperative to grand and florid gesturing at the hands of the artist. Designing something so restrained seemed to be a manner of cheating the public. This was especially felt when Los received his first prominent commission, the House am Michelea-Platz, a mixed-use development at the Hofburg, the city's most prized intersection. Visitors can still today pass through what was once the main gate of the old city walls, covered in Baroque detailing, and emerge to face a spare, white façade. Sitting atop a lovingly sculpted green marble base with Tuscan order columns and ample shop windows revealing an interior braced with deep red wood panels. The grid of the windows above is echoed by that of the soft, yellow light bulbs that illuminate the entrance. The building was at odds with everything around it, with the historical style of the plaza for sure, but also with the daring new trends of the time. Though newer photos show it with flower boxes, these were a later addition, and it was because of the unadorned windows that critics first mocked it as the house without eyebrows. Such alarm was caused by this anomaly in the local landscape that city authorities drew up an injunction to halt its construction. The ailing emperor Franz Josef, who had personally spearheaded the urban renewal and architectural replanning of the capital decades earlier, was rumored to grumble that the building ruined his view from the palace across Michelerplatz. But being no stranger to controversy, when the abuse rolled in, Los had a prepared statement of sorts. In 1910, the same year of the Michelerplatz scandal, Los gave a lecture in Vienna, reading Ornament and Crime, a short essay he had penned two years prior and so was launched into the public sphere a work that would be published in Hebrew and Japanese before it was printed in its original German. The famous essay starts not by proclaiming the baggage of applied ornament and all attachment to historical precedent as useless and wrong, which is often how it is interpreted, but by framing a recapitulatory theory of human development. Here is the embryo I mentioned earlier. Change and growth, expansion and actualization, indeed new ability, are the great themes of this essay. This is why he begins as he does. Many of you may remember feeling a shudder of unease upon learning that, as developing embryos, we all at a time had gills, and at some point, a tale. Los's rather sensible argument is that as humans learn and grow, we move through different stages of development. This clearly happens on a biological level, but Los wishes to extend this logic further, wondering what it would mean to have not just the body, but the entire being of a person evolve much in the way we rid ourselves of gills and tails. What would our minds and senses gain by this? What would they discard? He claims that, at birth, human sense impressions are analogous to a puppy's, a premise not too distant to that which Kafka would experiment with in his 1922 short story, 
investigations of a dog. At four, a child has the visual acuity of a Teutonic tribesman, by which he is presumably referring to the seeming inability of humans at that time to distinguish between red and orange. This element of human perception has a legacy down to today in that we call the famous Viking Eric the Red. And we would wager that a lot of five-year-olds would find it fascinating and hilarious that we don't call the red-haired orange heads. At six, the child perceives Socratically, and we can read Aristotle's description of rainbows to see if we agree with Los there. Though children may or may not see this way, we do know that color perception in Attic Greece was demonstrably quite different from our own. At eight, the child is held to be at the visual level of Voltaire, as the color violet, being separate from purple, was commonly noticed to start in the 18th century. And at last, Loos remarks that the physicist points today to colors in the solar spectrum which already have a name, but the knowledge of which is reserved for the men of the future. And it is this almost transhumanist future that he is concerned with. Having established his logic in biology, he takes it further into a place that earns him not a little scorn these days. Los claims that the child is amoral. Clearly so. But then he mentions something that may strike a very nervous chord in current sensibilities. He writes that, to our eyes, a pauper is amoral too. The pauper kills his enemies and eats them. He is not a criminal. But when the modern man kills someone and eats him, he is either a criminal or a degenerate. The pauper tattoos his skin, his boat, his paddles, in short, everything he can lay his hands on. He is not a criminal. The modern man who tattoos himself is either a criminal or a degenerate. There are prisons in which 80% of the inmates show tattoos. The tattooed who are not in prison are latent criminals or degenerate aristocrats. The rhetorical judo of this statement is astounding. He has taken what has become one of the hallowed, hollow, idols of contemporary culture, moral relativism, and made it repulsive to the politically correct sensibility. He notes that a pauper is not a criminal when he eats a defeated enemy because cannibalism has a place within his cultural context. But what is hard for many to embrace today is for that logic to be turned inwards, to face how we perceive the practices of our own culture. Regardless of how this makes one feel, Los is correctly noting that things like widespread graffiti or tattoos are distinct cultural markers. And he argues that they are born from a childlike disposition. Wasn't the name of the movement his fellow architects championed the Jugendstil? The urge to cover everything in ornament is a basic expressive impulse that Los calls the baby talk of painting. In doing so, he was observing that as expression gained in subtlety and sophistication, 
and especially as individuality became more assured and more mature, the need to cover things in ornament would taper off. The evolution of culture is synonymous with the removal of ornament from utilitarian objects. And this is a central point that even someone as sophisticated as Le Corbusier would gloss over in his rush to crown Loos as a hero of modernism. Ornament falls away from utilitarian objects as expression finds newer, more nuanced modes. Even more tantalizingly, the promise of evolved sensory perception lays before us, allowing us an understanding of space and time that was impossible for those in the past. Anything that might get in the way of this capacity and keep us from fulfilling our birthright of continuous development and growth would be, indeed, a crime. But what is the shape of the obstructive ornament that constitutes this crime? And what is the shape of the new human that is slowly emerging within us, and that will one day make our present selves look primitive and backward? Join us next week as we explore these questions in part two of our look at Adolf Loos, Ornament and Crime. Our executive producer is Monica Bellavin. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps the podcast grow. Every membership and donation helps us get more content to you.